This is Becoming Anti-Fragile with I.J. McCann. Each week I read a book and highlight the actionable wisdom within. To become anti-fragile, you must strengthen your mind and live with conviction. Let's get into it. How long will you wait to deem yourself worthy of the best and not transgress the distinct pronouncement of reason? You have received the rules which it was your duty to agree to, and have you agreed to them? What teacher do you still expect that you wait for him to correct you? You are no longer a youth, but already a full-grown man. If then you are negligent and slothful, and are continually making procrastinations after procrastinations, and proposal after proposal, and fixing day after day, after which you will amend yourself, You will not know that you are not making improvement, but will continue ignorant while you live until you die. Immediately then, think it right to live as a full-grown man and one who is making progress. Let everything which appears best to you be a law which must not be transgressed. And if anything laborious or pleasant or glorious or inglorious be presented to you, Remember that now is the contest. Now are the Olympic Games and they cannot be deferred. And that it depends on one defeat, one giving away that progress is either lost or maintained. In this way, Socrates became perfect. In all things improving himself, attending to nothing except to reason. But you, though you are not yet a Socrates, ought to live as one who wishes to be a Socrates. This is an excerpt from Enchiridion of Epictetus, or sometimes known as the Manual by Epictetus or the Handbook. This was compiled together by one of his students, Arian of Nicomedia, in the second century. The Manual is an abridgment of the larger uh, works of Epictetus, known as the Discourse of Epictetus. The Enchiridion is made up of 53 short chapters, And they're very short paragraphs. I read this book quite a few times and it's filled with notes. We'll start with a short background on Epictetus. Epictetus was a slave and later became a free man and began lecturing on his own account. And then he had to leave Rome when philosophers were banned by Dominitian in 89 AD. He ended up establishing his own school and from there gave up most of his lectures. So during his time as a slave under Epaphroditus, which was his master, Epictetus was severely abused by his master. And his master caused him severe pain. There's a story of how uh, the master is abusing him. And he says, look, if you keep doing this, you're going to break my limb. But his master continues to cause pain and ends up breaking his limb. And Epictetus never reacts and says, I told you, if you continue doing this, you're going to break my limb. And so what we can learn from this is that Epictetus is a practicing stoic. And I say practicing because it's very common now to hear of many people who say they're Stoics. It's the in thing to be a Stoic. I would credit Ryan Holiday for popularizing Stoicism. And I think it's good that this is happening. Now, with Epictetus, the interesting thing is that he never married. But then he later on adopted a child because the parents couldn't provide for it. Epictetus never wrote down anything. It was was a student, Arian of Nicomedia, who wrote down everything. And what we're going over today is the Enchiridion. The teachings here is is to be a guide for Stoics. 
is supposed to be something they can carry around, something short that they can look to every day and provide practical philosophy to live. So it's perfect for us. So that excerpt that we read was from chapter 51. And what Epictetus here is saying is that we should stop waiting on other people to tell us what to do. If you already know what you're supposed to do and you're not doing it, then you are, in his eyes, not a full-grown man. But he says, look, you are a full-grown man, so live the way you should live. And the quote I really like is, Immediately then think it right to live as a full-grown man, and one who is making progress, and let everything which appears best to you be law which must not be transgressed. And one of the themes for Epictetus is his idea of human nature. And for him, human beings are rational animals. And our rationality allows us to reflect on our world and act according to nature. So anything that is in discord, anything that's contrary to what we think is right, are things that we should not do. And anything that is aligned with nature, anything that's good for our nature, anything that's in line with how the world should function, those are things you should do. And those are things you should do as if they are law. For Epictetus opens the manual with, of things, some are in our power and others are not. In our powers are opinions, movement towards a thing, desire, aversion, and in a word, whatever our own acts. Not in our power are the body, property, reputation, offices, and in a word, whatever are not our own acts. And this is the underlying message throughout the manual. And it is that of the things that are in our control, of the things that are in our power to dictate, you should take great care of making sure that you are only focused on improving these aspects. And you should never focus your attention on the things that you cannot control. Things that are wholly dependent on other people. Things that are external to you like reputation, property, offices, opinions of other people. Because when we do this, according to Epictetus, we become unhappy. And Epictetus is not wrong here. We are most unhappy when we rely upon others for our happiness. If you rely on somebody else, somebody else's opinion of you to make you happy, to make you more joyful to feel more fulfilled then you you're living in a manner in which epictetus would say is a recipe for disaster and he goes on to say and the things in our power are by nature free not subject to restraint nor hindrance but the things not in our power are weak slavish subject to restraint in the power of others so if you think about your attitude towards something that somebody did to you or the attitude towards the situation that you're in. You are in full control of the, how you perceive what is happening to you. You are in full control of your emotion, or you should be. And that is the practice that Epictetus wants to teach us, is we have to be fully in control of our actions, of our minds specifically. Uh, this reminded me of Viktor Frankl's quote, right, that I opened with in episode 001, when he says that, Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Now, Frankl, whether he was a Stoic or not, but what we do know is that quote right there can sum up the manual. Epictetus wants us to know that in all that we do, if you are the master of your mind, it is the higher man who's controlling 
if it's a higher man that has control and not the lower man, you will live a happy life because it is the lower man who has all these desires, who has all these expectations of how he should be treated by others. And he says, those things are what makes you unhappy and unfulfilled. The lower man does not understand the concept of enough. He is by nature very, very greedy. So there is no such thing as enough for him. And all his passions, all his desires are carnal. He just wants the vainglory. He wants power. He wants to seek the things that will ultimately destroy you as a person. And there's a quote by the Buddha when he says, Though one were to conquer a million men in battle, the man who conquers himself is the greater victor. And the idea here is it doesn't matter how much power you have over other men. It doesn't matter if there are men bending their knees to you, genuflecting. If you have not conquered yourself, if the higher man has not conquered the lower man, then you are a slave. Because most men want to rule over other men. But the great and wise man rules over himself first. And one of the things that Epictetus continually goes over and over again is his idea that we should be unattached to things. I don't necessarily agree fully with what he says, but I think there, there's value in being unattached in, in some way. He says, In everything which pleases the soul or supplies a want or is loved, remember to add this. What is its nature? If you love an earthen vessel, Say it is an earthen vessel which you love. When it has been broken, you will not be disturbed. If you are kissing your child or wife, say that it is a human being whom you are kissing. If the wife or child dies, you will not be disturbed. So Epictetus here is saying, look, the only way that you will be disturbed is if you forget the nature of these things, right? If you forget that death is an inevitable part of life if you do not confront this reality when your wife or your child dies you will suffer more than you should suffer so he has this analogy he uses he says as on a voyage when the vessel has reached a port if you go out to get water it is an amusement by the way to pick up a shellfish or some bulb but your thought ought to be directed to the ship and you ought to be constantly watching if the captain should call. And then you must throw away all those things that you may not be bound and pitched into the ship like sheep. So in life also, if there be given to you instead of a little bulb or a shell, a wife and a child, there will be nothing to prevent you from taking them. But if the captain should call, run to the ship and leave all those things without looking back. And if you are too old, do not go far from the ship lest when you are called, you will fail to appear. So here's one of my contentions with Epictetus. I made a note here. What does he mean by leave them? The whole point of the manual is to live a virtuous life. How can you live a virtuous life if you are to abandon your children and your wife in the event that something happens? Now, obviously, I think to give him the benefit of the doubt, I believe what he's getting at here is in the event that either you die or your wife or your child dies, you should be able to confront that reality and absorb it and not think that an evil has been done to you and that the unfortunate nature of death that will come upon you inevitably in life, if you've confronted it, it's not going to be a shock 
and you're going to be able to bear it much better and more virtuously. And I think that's what he's getting at. So he goes on to say, when you see a person weeping in sorrow for a child gone abroad or dead or for loss of his property, take care that the appearances do not carry you away as if he were suffering in external things. Make a distinction in your own mind and say, it is not what happened that afflicts this man, but it is the opinion about this thing which afflicts the man. So far as words, then do not be unwilling to show him sympathy, even to lament with him. But take care that you do not lament in your inner being also. A very interesting passage because Epictetus here is showing you how you should approach somebody who is suffering the loss of a child or a loss of a loved one. And this is reminiscent of Job when he loses everything. He loses his his possessions, his farms, his house, his wife, his kids, everything. When this happens, he, his friends come from afar to come and comfort Job. And the way they comforted Job in the first few days, which is the way you should comfort your friends, especially when you don't know what to say. They sat in silence as Job mourned. However, the mistake that their friends make is that ultimately they opened their mouth and they started saying that Job is suffering because he was getting punished by God for some iniquity that he did, some sin that he committed. And Epictetus here is saying, do not be like these friends. Instead, lament with your friend when he is suffering. And he says, do not be so cold and so logical that you cannot lament with your friend, that you cannot stand by him when he's suffering and grieve with him. But when you do grieve with him, Epictetus says, do not let your soul be consumed by it. Again, for Epictetus, the main point here is to be in full control of your inner life such that these external events like your friend who's suffering the loss of his loved one, that situation doesn't impact you and it doesn't make you suffer in the same way, though you are able to show empathy and sympathy towards your friend. The other interesting thing in that passage is when he says, make a distinction in your own mind and say, it is not what happened that afflicts this man, but it is the opinion about this which afflicts the man. And he's saying here, it is our opinion about death that makes us suffer more than the reality of death. Because the reality of death is that it is part of life. The moment you are born, you are guaranteed to die. So then the reason you suffer when death happens, according to Epictetus, is because of your opinions about death. So he actually goes on to say on chapter 26, he says, We may learn the will of nature from the things in which we do not differ from one another. For instance, when your neighbor's slave has broken his cup or anything else, we are ready to say such things happen. You must know then that when your cup is broken, you ought to think as you did when your neighbor's cup was broken. Transfer this reflection to greater things also. Is another man's child or wife dead? There is no one who would not say, such is the lot of man. But when a man's own child or wife is dead, forthwith he calls out, Woe to me, how wretched I am. But we ought to remember how we feel when we hear that it has happened to another. This made me reflect on the loss of my son. Christmas season is always an interesting season for me because it is filled with both joy and sadness at the same time. 
I was reflecting on whether my sadness and the pain that I feel and the pain that I felt when my son died was because of my opinions about death or my opinions about the afterlife or because death itself was evil. And I think that what Epictetus here is saying is both correct and wrong. He's right in that oftentimes it is our opinion about death that scares us, that scares many people. When a few years ago, there was a big pandemic that happened, there was a sort of mass psychosis around people reflecting on their death and causing this irrationality that in many ways. However, it was also one of the first times in our lifetime where everybody, almost everybody on the planet had to stop and truly confront their death, even if it was only for a few months, because the possibility of dying was very real when we didn't know much about this pandemic. And so if Epictetus was around, he would say, you are all living in fear because you have not confronted death and because you have this bad opinion about death as something evil. But death is not evil. Death is part of life. There is no death without life and there is no life without death. And so going back to what I was reflecting when I was reading this is I realized that my sadness arose not because I had some opinion about the afterlife, because really you and I cannot know what happens in the afterlife because neither of us has died. We may have suspicions, we may have hypotheses around it, but we can never know. That is the first thing that we should establish because oftentimes it is the opinions about the afterlife that causes people to suffer more in their imagination than in reality. Because people think when their loved one dies, they might say, oh, because they had wrong doctrinal beliefs about certain things, if they're religious, right? Therefore, they are not going to make it to heaven. Instead, they might go to hell. And this opinion, these opinions that we have, they will cause more suffering to us than to the person who's passed away. And so for me, it was not so much a doctrinal thing, but it was more so because I viewed the death that my son suffered as ugly. You know, an innocent child had to die. And the way in which he died made it ugly and made the pain worse. But I realized that that it was my opinion about how ugly the death was that made my suffering worse. And so once I realized that the death was ugly in so far as it was death, the death I thought was ugly was actually in reality something beautiful because death, like I said before, death is part of life. And everything in this world requires death. And through death, there is life. And it was through this tragedy that made me the man that I am today. And so I say Epictetus is both right in this sense, but I think he's also wrong. He's wrong because when you suffer, when you endure pain because you've lost somebody close to you, you've lost somebody you love dearly, that I think is one of the most beautiful things in life. You cannot love deeply. You cannot love wholly without the risk of losing the other person. And the possibility of loss, sometimes in the actual act of losing somebody and experiencing the pain of them not being around, right? That pain, the loss pain there, that's very real, something to not be avoided. Where here for Epictetus, it does come across as if he wants to avoid this. And I I believe he is wanting to avoid this at all costs. Because the whole thing about the manual is that we should never be attached to things. Because it is only in our attachment that we feel loss, that we suffer. But to live a fully human life, to experience the fullness of life, I think, includes suffering just as much as it includes love. 
it is only in the deep love that you have that to suffer. But you suffer not because you feel badly, but you suffer because in this life, you no longer have that bond with another. However, love breaks all boundaries. And the love that you have for your son, for your daughter, for your wife, for your husband, even if they die, the love does not die. The love continues to persist. The love that you have is eternal. And I think that is something Epictetus is wrong about. So I think it's important for us to love deeply our family, our loved ones, our friends. And it is only through that that we experience life. Now, moving on to what Epictetus says about how to live. He gives the example of going to the bath. He says, if when you're having a bath, somebody hits you, somebody mistreats you, you see a fight, you say to yourself, I now intend to bathe and to maintain my will in a manner conformable to nature. And so you will do in every act. If any hindrance to bathing shall happen, let this thought be ready. It was not this only that I intended, but I intended also to maintain my will in a way conformable to nature. But I shall not maintain it so if I am vexed at what happens. And I made a note here saying, you know, we should do this in all areas of our life. When when the unexpected thing happens in our life, in our work, in our families, we should say to ourselves, this is something that we expected. And this is an opportunity for me to practice maintaining my will in a way that is conformable to nature. All these books that you and I are going through, the consistent theme across all of this is you must practice what you preach. You must practice and put into place the things that you say you will do. So then when you come across things that are unexpected, when you come across difficult times, you are able to maintain the same level of consistency, both through hard times and both through good times. And so Epictetus says, it is the act of an ill-instructed man to blame others for his own bad condition. It is the act of one who has begun to be instructed to lay the blame on himself and of one whose instruction is completed, neither to blame another nor himself. And Epictetus here is saying, look, those who are not in control of their emotions, of their mind, will blame somebody else, even if they are instructed even if they know what they're supposed to do. If you do not put these into practice, when difficult situation arises, you will blame other people and not yourself. But somebody who has been instructed and somebody who has begun to practice the wisdom will blame themselves for whatever occurs because they are the ones who realize that they should only focus on the things that they can control. And then he says, of the ones whose instruction is completed, neither do they blame themselves or another. And this for Epictetus is because whatever happens, he says, happens because of the gods. And to be able to be at peace with this is to dine amongst gods. And he has this analogy, which I'll go over in just a bit, about how life is like a banquet. So he says, remember that in life you ought to behave as at a banquet. Suppose that something is carried out round and is opposite to you. Stretch out your hand and take a portion with decency. Suppose that it passes by you. Do not detain it. Suppose that it is not yet come to you. Do not send your desire forward to it, but wait till it is opposite you. 
do so with respect to children and with respect to a wife, with respect to magisterial offices and with respect to wealth. And you will be sometime a worthy partner of the banquets of the gods. But if you take none of the things which are set before you and even despise them, then you will be not only a fellow banqueter with the gods, but also a partner with them in power. For by acting so, Diogenes and Heraclitus and those like them were deservedly divine and were so called. So this is the continuation of his point about not being attached. And I have the note here, which says, in not being attached to this world, in not being attached to the outcomes of your surrounding and not being affected by what happens to you externally, you've transcended your human nature such that you are now like a god. And so he says, seek not that the things which happen should happen as you wish, but wish the things which happen to be as they are, and you will have a tranquil flow of life. Right? Seek not that the things which happen should happen as you wish, meaning when things happen to you, that you don't want, that you disagree should happen to you, that you are disturbed by, don't contemplate and say, I wish it happened differently. I, I wish something else had happened instead of this. So for Epictetus, he's saying, when the things that are disagreeable to you happen, unexpected things happen to you, say to yourselves, this is as it should be. This is how fate wants it to be. And in acknowledging and accepting this, you will live a peaceful life, or more accurately, he says, you will have a tranquil flow of life. The metaphor in my mind is like a river that's flowing. When a stone is placed in the water, if the river is too small, the stone will have a very strong impact on the way the water flows. But if the river is wide enough, no matter the size of the stone, the water always finds a way around it. And that, I think, is how we should see the teachings of Epictetus, that the more you cultivate the power of your mind, the more agency you have, the larger the river gets and the more stones can be thrown into it and nothing happens. But the less agency you have, no matter the size of the stone, you will be wholly impacted by that. So on freedom, he says, whoever then wishes to be free, let him neither wish for anything nor avoid anything which depends on others. If he does not observe this rule, he must be a slave. He goes on to say, you can be invincible if you enter into no contest in which it is not in your power to conquer. Take care then when you observe a man honored before others or possessed of great power or highly esteemed for any reason not to suppose him happy, but be not carried away by the appearance. For if the nature of the good is in our power, neither envy nor jealousy will have a place in us. There is only one way to this to despise the things which are not in our powers. Two things here. First is to not be tricked by appearances. He says, even if you see a man being honored, do not think that he is happy because you don't know his inner life. He could be suffering deeply, but on the outside, he presents himself as a happy man. But in reality, he is suffering. He might be suffering the loss of his child. He might be suffering because he does not have discipline, even though on the outside it looks like he has it. So it is much better for Epictetus to be somebody who is disdained by the public, but in reality is a man of integrity, both in doing the things that he'll say he, he'll do, but also in that he is 
disciplined, and he is at peace. So he says in chapter 22, If you desire philosophy, prepare yourself from the beginning to be ridiculed, to expect that many will sneer at you and say, He has all at once returned to us as a philosopher. Where does he get this superlicious look for us? Do not show any superlicious look, but hold on to the things which seem to you best as one appointed by God to this station. And remember that if you abide in the same principle, these men who first ridiculed will afterward admire you. But if you shall have been overpowered by them, you will bring on yourself double ridicule. So just as we should reserve our opinions about other people and not judge them too early, so too we should make sure that we don't care about the opinions of other people about us. We should never place the opinions of other men above our own opinions about ourselves. Most suffering come when we believe that somebody thinks of us in a particular manner and it could turn out that they don't think about us at all and likely don't even think about us. We are more often caught up in thinking that people are thinking about what we're doing, how we're living our lives, when in reality, and human nature is very similar that we are inward facing. We think more about what other people think about us in that we actually don't have time what we think about other people. So this means for us to not care what other people think. So he says, remember that it is not he who reviles or strikes you, who insults you. But your opinion that these things are insulting, when then a man irritates you, you must know that it is your own opinion which irritates you. Therefore, try especially not to be carried away by appearance. For if you once gain time and delay, you will more easily master yourself. And he also says, if you would improve, submit to being considered a simpleton and foolish with respect to externals. Wish to be considered to know nothing. And if you shall seem to some to be a person of importance, distrust yourself. For you should know that it is not easy both to keep your will in a condition conformable to nature and to secure external things. If a man is careful about the one, he must neglect the other. He's saying here that you cannot both want praises from other people and also be free because in you wanting the praises of other people which are external to you you have become a slave to their opinions and but if you don't want to be a slave to the opinions of other people to the external things then you have to be willing to be seen as a simpleton as a fool since you do not care about the opinions of other people and you are focusing all your energy on maintaining the freedom and the agency of controlling the things in your direct power. Related to this, he says, But to me, all omens are auspicious if I choose. For whatever results, it is in my power to derive benefit from it. For Epictetus, he's saying, These things, these omens only have power if I give them the power. And so for me, I don't give them the power, and so they don't affect me. On chapter 32, he says, when you go to divination, divination basically is just seeking knowledge about the future, getting answers about questions that you have about life, about the future by supernatural means from diviners. So for Epictetus, he's saying, look, if you, if you go to these divinations, most people, when they go here, place so much power and emphasis 
on what the diviner says that it, it ends up coming true. It ends up becoming uh, so powerful that it impacts the way they live. But for Epictetus, he says, do not then bring to the diviner desire or aversion. For if you do, you will approach him with fear. But having determined in your own mind that everything which shall turn out is indifferent and does not concern you, whatever it may be, for it will be in your power to use it well, and no man can hinder this. Come then with confidence to the gods as your advisors. And then when any advice shall have been given, remember whom you have taken as advisors and whom you will have neglected if you do not obey them. And go to divination, as Socrates said that you ought, about those matters in which all the inquiry has reference to the result, and in which means are not given either by reason or by any other art for knowing the things which is the subject of the inquiry. Do not let these things impact you. Do not let these things affect you. Take them as they are, simply as words that are being given and if in these divinations there are warnings for your friend being in danger he goes on to say make sure you tell your friend but don't expect anything else beyond that so on external things epictetus says be not be elated at any excellence which belongs to another if a horse when he is elated should say i am beautiful one might endure it but when you are elated and say i have a beautiful horse you must know that the horse is the cause of your elation what then is your own? The use of appearances. Consequently, when in the use of appearances you are conformable to nature, then be elated. For then you will be elated at something good, which is your own. So I have this note on the side that I wrote. It says, don't take pride in the works, beauties of external things like status, money, fame. All these things are contingent and they're not a necessary part of your nature as a human being and contingent things because they're not necessary can be taken away and if all your pride and if all your identity is caught up and wrapped up in these things a status money fame then when these things disappear you no longer have an identity and for epictetus this is the worst place to be in to be in a situation where all your identity is caught up in the in the performance that you must maintain to keep these external praises for Epictetus, this is a slave because a slave must continually please its master if the slave doesn't please his master then his master can kill him his master can sell him off and Epictetus is saying as somebody who used to be a slave so obviously for him the analogy that he uses about slaves all the time is close to his heart so he goes on to say later on if it should ever happen to you to be turned to externals in order to please some person, you must know that you have lost your purpose in life. Be satisfied then with being a philosopher. And if you wish also to seem a philosopher to any person, appear so to yourself and you will be able to succeed. His line about losing your purpose if you are dependent on external things and on dependent on pleasing people was quite a profound statement. Because you only have a purpose in this situation if you are pleasing people. But you and I both know that you cannot please people forever. Somebody will always end up being disappointed. Think about some of the greatest teachers. Like some of the people who have lived great lives. They were always they were hated. Take Jesus, for example. He's considered by every religious tradition as one of the greatest 
if not the greatest teacher of all time. A man who was peaceable, a man who loved, a man who cared for the poor, cared for the weak. But guess what happened to him? Condemned unjustly by Herod. And he got crucified. Now, if this can happen to Jesus, it, it means that you who are very far, the, the level that Jesus was at, will likely fail trying to please people. Now, of course, Jesus was not a people pleaser. He was very far from it. And it's partially because of this that he got to trouble with the law, with the Sanhedrins, with the Pharisees, and ultimately with the Roman authorities. But this was all due to the fact that Jesus knew who he was and he was willing to die for it. He was willing to take the risk for the beliefs that he had. Same thing happened with Socrates. Socrates here, you know, he gets put in prison because people say he's corrupting the youth and he's given the hemlock to drink. And even Socrates, who by all means was living a life that, according to Epictetus, was perfect. He too died, but before his death, his friends tried to break him out of prison. He says, look, it is better for me to suffer injustice than to commit injustice myself and break out of prison and break the law. And so Socrates, very similar to Jesus, is willing to take the risk and pay the ultimate price of death for his belief. And that is someone who is not a people pleaser. And so for us, the lesson here is do not try to be a people pleaser. People pleasers live some of the worst, most depressing lives. And they are some of the most easily manipulated people because they will always want to do what others want just so that they can look good in these people's eyes. You must take care to not fall into this trap of trying to always please somebody else. But a side note here is to not go to the extreme end and start acting like a complete jerk and to start acting like a complete a-hole. Because oftentimes people go, people who are once people pleasers, when they learn that people pleasing is a way of life that uh, causes more depression, causes more anxiety, they go to the far extreme end and become complete jerks. They don't think about other people. They have no sense of, of virtue. They have no sense of balance and harmony. And for Epictetus, these people are going to be the same, right? They're still going to be a slave because, because they are not conforming to their nature. If you conform to the nature of man, you will live a virtuous life. And a virtuous life is one that is lived in harmony, in balance. You are not on the extreme end. You are not brash, so you make stupid mistakes. Neither are you a coward, but you are courageous. You are in the center, right? You don't overindulge in eating you don't under eat either. So you're not an anorexic and you're not somebody who can't stop eating. You're in the middle. You eat until you're full and then you stop, but you never overindulge. And Epictetus wants to emphasize that it is your mind, right? The mind is the most important thing of, of your whole being. If you can control your mind, if you can control your attitude towards the situations that you are in, no matter how dire they are, you are a free man. So he says, if any person tried to put your body in the power of any man whom you fell in with, you would be vexed, right? So he's saying, look, if somehow your body was being controlled by somebody else that you knew or one of your friends, you know, you would be completely disgusted by it. You will, you will be vexed. You will want to escape that. So he goes on to say, but you put your mind in the power of any man whom you meet so that if he should revile you, it is disturbed and troubled. Are you not ashamed of this? A very good reminder that we should be very careful. And this is what he's saying about people pleasers, right? People pleasers allow their minds to be controlled by somebody so that 
they meet someone and that person dislikes them, says something negative about them. It ends up hurting them. It ends up just uh, troubling them. He says, this, if this happens to you, you should be ashamed because you should be the master of your mind, not somebody else. You are only hurt when you choose others to hurt you. When you think that you are being hurt by somebody else's words about you, that's when you are most hurt. But if you take what they are saying as if they're simply stating a fact, then there's nothing to be heard about. So Epictetus has this quote, which uh, Marcus Aurelius in it meditation also says, the quote is around how when somebody tells you about your faults, you should say, oh, yes, I have these faults, but you forgot to mention these other faults, right? So Epictetus says, if a man has reported to you that a certain person speaks ill of you, do not make any defense to what has been told to you, but reply, the man did not know the rest of my faults, else he would not have mentioned these only. And this is the best way to make sure that external things don't impact you, right? Because if it did impact you, you would look to justify that the man speaking ill about you is wrong. You'll try to uh, find them and you know start a fight with them. But instead, for Epictetus and for any Stoic, it is that you take the criticism face value and say, yes, and there's more. And in saying that, you diffuse the power that this other person has over you. And for Epictetus, just because you have faults doesn't mean you have to let them pass. But you have to make sure that you are focusing on improving yourself. So one of the things he says is in chapter 41, it is a mark of a mean capacity to spend much time on the things which concern the body, such as much exercise, much eating, much drinking, much easing of the body, much copulation. But these things should be done as subordinate things. Let all your care be directed to the mind. Epictetus wants you to not overindulge. In overindulging, you weaken your mind because your mind is now less focused because now you're overeating. You're drinking too much. You're having too much sex. You're too focused on the pleasure, on getting pleasure, that your mind no longer desires to seek difficult things because it is only through the cultivation of the mind, which in itself is a very difficult thing to do, that you are able to achieve a form of enlightenment, so Epictetus says, in walking about, you take care not to step on a nail or to sprain your foot. So take care not to damage your own ruling faculty. If we observe this rule in every act, we shall undertake the act with more security, right? This, this point is to drive home the idea that your mind is the most important thing. And just as you are careful not to make sure you're stepping on nails, on glass, making sure that you wear shoes when you're walking around so that your feet aren't dirty. Why, if we do this with our body, our feet specifically, why, if we do this with that, we don't do it with our mind? Why do we let our minds be polluted with disgusting things, with things that make us less motivated, with things that increase our vices and not encourage our virtues? Why do we spend time, say, watching shows that are more damaging to our mind than, say, spending time with our friends, spending time reading? Why do we do these things? If we wash our hands daily because we don't want to accidentally eat something dirty. So similarly, if we have baths daily, if we shower daily, we're trying, we clean ourselves from it. 
So similarly, we too should do the same thing to our mind. Every day we should reflect upon the day to make sure that what is entering our mind are the things that are good. And to make sure anything that's bad that has entered, we make sure to remove it. It is only through this act, a form of ritual that we do with our mind, that we become better, that we are able to live a life that's meaningful and full of purpose. When we do this, we are able to hone into what our purpose is. But if our mind is polluted, it becomes very, very difficult to understand what it is that we are supposed to do. And so Epictetus says, the condition and characteristic of an uninstructed person is this. He never expects profit nor harm from himself, but from externals. The condition and characteristic of a philosopher is this. He expects all advantages and all harm from himself. The signs of one who is making progress are these. He censors no man. He praises no man. He blames no man. He accuses no man. He says nothing about himself as if he were somebody or knew something. When he is impeded at all or hindered, he blames himself. If a man praises him, he ridicules the praiser to himself. If a man censors him, he makes no defense. If he goes about like a convalescent, careful not to disturb his organs before they are firmly fixed, he removes all desires from himself, and he transfers aversion to those things within our power which are contrary to nature. He employs a moderate movement toward everything. Whether he is considered foolish or ignorant, he cares not. In a word, he watches himself as if he were an enemy and lying in ambush. So we should be like a philosopher. A philosopher, according to Epictetus, is somebody, again, who cares not about what other people think because he is focused on what he can do as a man and he's focused on becoming a better man. The last thing I want to mention is something he says in chapter 33. He says, Avoid banquets which are given by strangers and by ignorant persons. But if ever there is occasion to join in them, let your attention be carefully fixed, that you slip not into manners of the vulgar. For you must know that if your companion be impure, he also who keeps company with him must become impure, though he should happen to be pure. Take the things which relate to the body as far as their bare use, food, drink, clothing, house, and slaves, but exclude things which is for show or luxury. Epictetus understands that it is your company that determines and can often influence what you become, who you become. If you surround yourself with, with people who are vulgar, with people who are impure, with people who are not on the same level, if you keep company with people who are not in pursuit of becoming more virtuous, wanting to live a life that's worth living, a life that's meaningful and not distracted by the trivial pleasures of this world, you will easily be influenced by them, no matter how powerful your mind is, because your environment will impact you no matter what. And this section reminded me of a few passages that I love from the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs, something that everybody should read, no matter if they're religious or not. It is one of the best books out there. And so I'm going to read you a few sections from it that are very similar to what Epictetus says. The first one is Proverbs 12:26. A righteous man is cautious in friendship, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 13:20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffer harm. Proverbs 25:26 
like a muddied spring or a polluted well are the righteous who give way to the wicked. And the last proverb I want to mention is Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a person sharpens his friend. You and I are reading these books every week because our goal is to sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. And with that, I'll wrap. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating on Spotify or Apple. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps this podcast get discovered by more people. And the other thing is share with a friend. The way podcasts are discovered is through word of mouth. And I appreciate all those who have shared it with their friends. Until next week, peace. Peace.